make a momentum change in the next, uh, probably not next week, which is our communion Sabbath. Uh, get a little plug-in for communion next week. But then the following week, we'll probably go back to Romans chapter 8 and talk a lot about what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. So there's a transition that I want you to notice, and let's have a word of prayer as we get started. Gracious God, we come before you today, sinners who have been redeemed. I pray that everybody in this room has Christ in their life and knows what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for all the good things that you have done for us. And this morning, we're going to recognize and appreciate and praise you for some of those things that within ourselves, it's just impossible for us to fulfill. So we thank you and we praise you, especially for Jesus' death on the cross, his ministry in heaven. And Lord, we pray that he'll come back soon as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let me do a little bit of summarizing first. I really would like you to get the big picture. Only then can we fill in the details. So at this point, I'm really not that interested in going into great detail in some of these verses. I want you to catch the big picture. So we saw at the beginning of the book of Romans, in verse 2, that Paul was so keen to visit these Italians and to share the gospel with them. We don't really know, I don't know what they understood about Jesus' death on the cross. They must have understood something. But in this 16-chapter letter that he wrote, there's a lot of information about the good news of Jesus Christ. When we get to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he explains a little bit more clearly what that gospel is. And he says that, um, and he mentions their justification and righteousness by faith, that the ones who are right with God are the ones who trust in the provision that God has made. And then, of course, very important, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, uh, I think verse 20, he's talking about sin and ungodliness and wickedness, and that all of us come under that category. So in that sense, there is bad news, quite a lot of bad news in Romans, but of course, the bad news is good news if it helps us to realize who, what we really lack. And really, that was one of the great purposes of the law. We're going to talk about the law today quite a bit. One of the great purposes of the law of God, like on Mount Sinai, was to help those Jewish people to really see what sin is. And when an individual really understands the the wickedness of their own. Jeremiah says the human heart is desperately wicked. I don't think I've preached a sermon on that since I've been here, but I did preach a sermon on that a long time ago, and someone became almost an instant Seventh-day Adventist and was ready for baptism from that one sermon, I think. It was so, it's such a powerful text. Most of us don't realize. We, te- we put 
these little categories that we have sin, we have these little white lies, for example. My mom could never get it into her head that a lie is a lie and it's wicked. To her, it was just a little white lie, no big deal. Many Christians uh, are the same way, but that's not the way the Bible teaches about sin. Sin is something really, really bad leading to death. And that comes through in those early chapters of Romans. And then he says in verse 21 of chapter 3, but now God has done something about that terrible, terrible problem. And then he starts to talk about uh, righteousness by faith and the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't spend time on much, too much time on Romans chapter 4, where Abraham is an illustration and David of people who are right with God by trusting in the promises of God. But we did spend some time in Romans chapter 5, especially in verses 12 through 21, where we saw Adam, who brings the legacy of sin and death on the human race, seems that everything is negative concerning Adam. And then the last, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, the legacy that he brings us, which is, is righteousness and life and eternal life and so on. Everything is good with the Lord Jesus Christ. I briefly mentioned chapter 6 and chapter 7, which I look on as Paul going on a little detour. When I say a detour, I'm not saying that it's not important what he shares in chapter 6 and 7, especially for, for today's sermon, it is important. We just can't cover everything as quickly as I guess I want to go. I wanted to get you into chapter 8 as, as quick as I could. But in chapter 6, he deals with, okay, if grace covers everything in Romans 5, we can live however we want. And he says, God forbid. And he talks about our union, our union with the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 6 and what that means. And then in chapter 7, he deals with another objection to his teaching on justification by faith, which is, okay, Paul, it sounds like the law, there's no place for the law. Now, I'm sure there were Jews that thought of righteousness by law-keeping, but they didn't, didn't all believe that. But there was a lot of misunderstanding on the law. You can certainly see that in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the Sermon on the Mount. That is a corrective to wrong understanding on the law of God. So in chapter 7, you have pretty much the whole chapter there dealing with the role of the law. And of course, very famous, oh, wretched man that I am, though, that kind, kind of language. But it's really about the role of the law. Some of us can know what the law says, what we should do, and how we should be. But in chapter 7, there is no power to do it. And up to this point, very little mention of the Holy Spirit. He is mentioned in chapter 5. Um, briefly. I think he's mentioned briefly in chapter 7. But in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is all over the pages that we're going to look at. So maybe not so much today, but in the coming weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. Because after all, when I came to Jesus Christ, I'll just give you my own little story here. When I came to the Lord Jesus Christ, I didn't know anything about justification by faith. 
I mean zilch. But I did know something about the overpowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And even though I couldn't give you a Bible study on the Holy Spirit and say very much intelligent about him, I felt in an incredibly powerful way his presence over me. And when I read something like in Romans there where it talks of, of peace, um, if, I don't know if Paul is especially talking about experiential peace there or just that the sin problem has been dealt with, but I certainly knew the peace of God in my heart. And if somebody would have come to me and said, okay, Jesus has come that you might be saved from you, your sins. Are you saved from your sins? I would have said emphatically, yes even though I knew much less than anyone in this room about the good news of the gospel. So the Holy Spirit, he will go on to say in Romans 8, later in Romans 8, that if we do not have the Spirit of God, we are none of his. So the hallmark of being a child of God is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now let's go to Romans chapter 8, and as the page I look on here in my Bible, I also see part of Romans 7. And I see in Romans 7 a lot of talk about the law, the law this, the law that. So just be aware of that, we're not going to go into any detail on that, but just be aware of it, and then we'll go to chapter 8. Therefore, there is now how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, those of you that were here last week, did you have a good week or not? Because if you had a good week and you took that verse seriously, because that's how you have good weeks, right? By taking the Word of God seriously and applying it to your life, right? Wow, dead silence. One over here. That's, 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 that's how you grow in Christ. So you take that verse, and some of you said last week, I says, well, give me some words. When I read that verse, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. How, how do you, what do you, what goes on in your head? Someone says victory. Someone said encouragement. What else was said? Freedom. I like that word. And there was one more. Hope. Hope. So very, very positive response to just that one little verse. And I mentioned that that one verse is like, um, like a pivotal verse, summarizing probably seven chapters, certainly linking us up, as I see it, with chapter five. But when you see the therefore statement, you always think of Paul summarizing. Now, if you've missed, you've missed all of this uh, the things I want to do, I don't do, and so on. Well, here's the conclusion of the matter. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And you really can only establish that from Romans chapter 5, where he takes you from Adam and he pl God places you in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is a very encouraging or should be a very encouraging verse. Now, what is the opposite word? If I ask you for opposites, if I say hate, what is the opposite? So if I say condemnation, what is the opposite? Yeah, acceptance is a good word. What do you think Paul would use? 
Okay, life is also a good one. We are going to we are going to see the word life today, but it's justification. That is the opposite. That comes through clearly. I, I shared some verses with you in chapter five, verse sixteen and verse eighteen, where he actually uses the word condemnation. So think of Adam, all condemnation. He sinned, you sinned, negative condemnation. Think of what Christ has done, justification for those who trust in Christ. Okay, those are the, those are the opposites. So in Romans 5, 1, he, he mentions, therefore, now that we've been having been justified by faith, he doesn't use the word, but he uses the opposite word, no condemnation. So he's still bringing out the implications of justification by faith. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And I mentioned last week um, this idea of being in Christ. It's Paul's, probably Paul's favorite term. It's something that every one of us should understand, what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And I believe that he's going to take that phrase, which is used, as I said, I don't know how many times, but many, many times in his writings, and he's going to link that up obviously to the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to the Holy Spirit. So you are incorporated into Christ. His death, your death. His resurrection, your resurrection. You've heard me say this before. His ascension, your ascension. Do you believe that? His ministry in heaven, your ministry. He's interceding for us. And of course, the whole inheritance idea, what Christ inherits is ours too. We have much more, a phrase that he's used many times in Romans 5, much more in Christ than we could ever have in Adam. Now he's going to explain a little bit why there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, so get that phrase in, in one on the left side of your brain, or one side of your brain, has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, it's very interesting to see how the commentators deal with verse 2. And um, the way that my brain is wired, I kind of want to know all the details, because it's the Word of God, and I, I think every word is important. Every concept is important. But they do deal with... with um, some of these phrases uh, quite differently uh, from commentator to commentator. I look on the law of sin and death, rightly or wrongly, I look on that as the Ten Commandments. Because even though he, Paul says the Ten Commandments is holy, just, and good, he also speaks of the Ten Commandments as being the thing that condemns us and ultimately condemns us in a way of bringing death upon us. That's the way I see that. Some see it as a principle of sin and death, whatever that might mean, I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, when Paul's talking about the law of God, he's pretty much talking about the Ten Commandments most times that he uses that phrase. But anyway, whatever this is, this law of sin and death, it enslaves us. It's a negative, and we've got to be set free from that. Do you remember I briefly mentioned chapter 7 last week? Romans 7, go to that. Verse. 
he uses marriage as an illustration. Do you remember those of you that were here? Do you not know, brothers, I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives, for example, by law. So an illustration here, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, and so on. And we've got to be set free from that. And when he dies, she is set free. She's legally right, has a right to marry. Verse 4, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. So we've got to be set free, released in some way, shape, or form from this condemnation of the law. And what sets us free? What does it say in verse 2? What sets us free? Look at your Bibles. The law, another law. There's two laws here. Some say, see, some, some say, see two principles. But the word law is, is in this translation. The law of what? There's the law of the Spirit of Christ. So I think here's, here's a way of bringing in the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in, at least in this translation, it's in its capital S. I know it's not in all translations. But when a person comes to salvation, there is more than just God declaring them, forgiving their sins and declaring them righteous. In our class this morning, I, I said that's the negative side of the equation, right? So he, he cancels something out, which is your sin, past, present, future sins. They're canceled out. The Scripture speaks a lot about the forgiveness of sins, and, and Christians love those verses because we, we, we need to be constantly reminded that our sins uh, are forgiven, okay? But it's canceling something out. There's nothing about righteousness there. So God declares us righteous, and immediately, there's no separation in time, the Holy Spirit enters us, and God starts to recreate the life of Christ in us, an actual practical righteousness, which of course the, some of the Catholics make a big deal of and, and mis, misinterpret, but that's, that's the reality. The Holy Spirit comes in. There has, the law could not give us life. Couldn't do that. It can point out what life is and certainly what God defines as life, but it can't make it happen in our life. It's, it's weakened in some way, does not have the ability to do that. So he says here, the law of the spirit of life, I believe that's a f referring to the gospel. The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do. Now notice, he does not say the law is powerless. The law has power. It has power to point us in a certain direction, right? It has power to expose the sin in our life. Some people don't see anything wrong with taking someone else's spouse. After all, God has given them love for another person. 
Christians talk this way, some of them. So it's very important that we understand what sin is. And the law is very, very good, likened to a mirror, exposing the dirt in our lives. So the law has a certain power in a certain way. He doesn't say that the law is powerless in verse 3. But he says, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by what? By the flesh or the sinful nature. Now, I'm not too happy with the NIV translation always, even though I use it a lot. Uh, there's no translation that, that is just, just absolutely perfect. But flesh is something negative we inherit from Adam. So it's another category that we need to think of. And we've been taken from the world of flesh, and we've been put into the world of the Spirit. That's the way that I understand this. This is before he talks about how we should behave, which is going to come in verse 5 and onwards. So, it's another transfer idea, and we've been set free Aren't you glad you've been set free? Don't you feel you've been set free? See, this is something that you believe, and it's something you should experience as well. And, and, and the experience will increase dramatically the more you understand the truth of Scripture. Understanding is really, really important as far as living the holy life. Now, I've already, right at the beginning of the sermon, I've already told you, well, here's someone that understands almost nothing, me at 20 years of age, and having this glorious experience where I'm transferred from this realm to this realm. It took me years to understand many of these basic truths of what God had actually done. Does it mean that I could not enjoy my Christian life? No. But it does mean that I'm a, a Christian who has a lot to learn. And the less you know spiritually, the easier it is for the devil to give you the runaround. So it's very important to get a pretty good understanding of these concepts like justification and righteousness by faith. So the devil cannot give you the runaround so easily. After all, if you don't have, feel a sense of freedom and victory and you fall into sin and the devil comes along and attacks you, how are you going to deal with that? Think of all the Christians that you know that have backslid, that have stopped coming to church, that won't even respond by mail or telephone anymore, and it's usually, usually because they don't know how to handle sin. Well, we all sin, right? Oh, I'm not sure about that one. Maybe I need to preach some sermons on perfectionism. We all sin, right? That's why John says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess our sins. But we sin against our best friend. We're not sinning against the law. We're not under the jurisdiction of the law. We're under Christ, God's jurisdiction. He's our best friend, and we sin, sin against him. And, and that's, that's much worse sin, to sin against your best friend or your lover 
than it is against law. It's a totally different category. Anyway, the weakness is in sinful man, sinful human nature. And so he condemns sin in sinful man. And when did that happen? On Calvary's cross, when Jesus became the sin offering. And the sins of mankind were laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ, every one. And you know that was horror, horror for Christ. Gethsemane, Calvary, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Christ had never experienced that sense of separation from God because of sin. Did Jesus sin? No. He is the Holy One. Who can convict him of sin? But our sins were laid upon him. As Isaiah says in chapter 53, he became the sin offering. All of these sacrificial offerings in the Old Testament all pointed towards this great sacrifice on behalf of the human race. So in this translation, it says that he became a, a, a sin offering in verse 3, and so he condemns sin in sinful man. So sin has been condemned. There is no condemnation for the one in Christ Jesus. But here's the verse I want to get to, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law, and don't we know, any of us that know our Bible, that the law has a lot of righteous requirements. You know, we just think of law in terms of 10. But think of all of that law in the Old Testament. Think of all the health laws. Think of all the ceremonial laws, the moral laws, civil laws. The whole book of Deuteronomy is called the book of the law. Anyway, the, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in Christ. What does it say? In us. Can we believe that? After all that Paul has said in Romans, the first seven chapters, in order that the righteous requirements of the law, how Christianity needs to hear that in North America. Cheap grace does not speak and preach on verse 4. It has no place for it. And there is a lot of that within Christendom. There may be some of it within Adventism. I don't think there's a whole lot of it. In Adventism, it's much more an emphasis on we must do this and we must do that. How do we get that balance? Isn't the balance right here in these four verses? Verse 1 gives you no condemnation. And verse 4 says the righteous requirements of the law. So you got law and gospel right there, hand in hand together, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And as I said a week or two ago, this phrase in verse 4 in the King James is in verse 1. Uh, manuscripts, it's not really a good idea to place it there, so most modern translations place it in verse 4. The point is this. 
that the one whom God saves, hopefully you and me and a whole lot of other people, are saved to be obedient, are saved to be holy, are saved to be sanctified. There's lots of terminology that's used, but the one thing that we should see in a Christian is obedience to the will of God, right? So even if you're 20 years of age like I was and know very, very little about what God's will is, as God's will is revealed to you, just as fast as you're able to relate to it, God doesn't dump all His will into our lap on day one. Because you have the Holy Spirit within you, the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, I mean, it's pretty obvious what kind of Spirit He is if we use the term Holy Spirit. You have all the all of the equipment, all of the necessary ingredients to be exactly what God calls you to be. Everything we need, everything we need to live a godly life is given to us as soon as Christ and the Holy Spirit enter our life and take over. Now, I know that's pretty hard to believe when you first become a Christian because you have so much to learn when you first become a Christian, but I, I do believe that's what the Holy Scriptures teach. And this is a glorious statement that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Texts that we do use more often as Seventh-day Adventists fit in very well here. Here are they. Some of you want to go in the book of Revelation? Okay, here's Revelation. Revelation 12, 17, Revelation 14, 12. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. There can be such blindness on these issues. I may have shared this with you before. When you've been in a church almost six years, you do tend to repeat yourself sometimes, right? Forgive me. But I'm in a bookstore, a very young Christian, just like a kid in a candy store, just in this Christian bookstore, so excited. And I'm pretty much on my knees looking at this bottom row, and there's an Irishman next to me. Oh, you have to watch out for these Irishmen. An Englishman and an Irishman together on their knees. Well, I guess it's not so bad if you're on your knees, huh? But uh, anyway, he was a Christian, I was a Christian, and we started talking, and we, we immediately hit it off until until in the conversation I brought in this obedience stuff, this commandment stuff. And I don't know if I said it the right way or, or did it the right way. I can't remember now. But I know it was a very early lesson for me as a young Christian to know that I had joined a church that has a massive, a huge emphasis on obedience and commandment keeping. And here's my fellow Christian, and I, have no, I don't have any reason to think he's not a Christian, but here's my fellow Christian who cannot even see it. So I grabbed the Bible. Surely if you take a Bible and open it, I mean, it was right there. It wasn't my Bible. It was just there on the bookshelf. And I took it down, and I opened it, and I asked him to read it. Surely he's going to get it now? No, he didn't. He didn't. And I just hope in the mercy of God, in the goodness of God, that at one day that 
that this young man, hopefully by now, he has got it. That a Christian, if we say we're going to be obedient, see, many Christians will say, well, I'll be obedient to what I want to be obedient to. So I'm going to be obedient to Christ. As though that means I'm not going to be obedient to God's law, because God's law is something I'm not under, right? We've seen that in Romans. Paul actually teaches that. We're not under the condemnation. That's maybe what they miss. Uh, but I'm not under the law. And, and, this is, and, and Pastor Mason, this morning, you said that this could possibly be the law of sin and death. So I don't want anything to do with that. A lot of, lot of confusion on, on this subject. And yet, it's so basic. It's so important. And it's probably why some Christians say the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, only for the Jews. Huh? Man, this is some of the greatest teaching coming from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, only for the Jews. So I don't know. I guess the sinful human heart tends to miss the point. And those of us that do think we know the truth, we have to be gracious and speak the truth in love and be patient with people. But we do have to emphasize God calls us to holiness. Certainly never in our own strength. Just read Romans 7 and you'll see how quickly whoever the man is in Romans 7, how he struggled to even begin to obey the law of God. But in Christ, all that God wants us to be, we can be. Commandment keepers who are not legalists. Ah, there's an interesting concept. People who are full of works, inspired by the Holy Spirit, fruit inspired by the Holy Spirit, just imagine if planet Earth, if everyone was converted on planet Earth and everyone kept God's law on planet Earth. Do you think Barack would go for that? What about Ben Carson? He's trying to get his nose in there. And we will have that one day. We will have that on planet Earth. God will create a new heavens and a new earth and blessed are those who do his commandments, King James Version, a lot of the text I've memorized that way, that they may have right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. God has saved us to be joyful, happy, obedient children. And if there's something in your life, as there, there is something in my life, then you just, and the Spirit of God convicts you of that, you say to the Lord, Lord, take that thing. Just get that stuff out of my life. And because you are in Christ and, and the Holy Spirit is within you, it will happen. It will happen. If you ask God for these things, and you realize under the, under the conviction of God, under the word, conviction of the Word of God, conviction of the Holy Spirit, that there's something in your life that's not pleasing to God. God delights to answer those prayers. You know, sometimes we have, a, we have a struggle exactly knowing what God's will is. Well, as far as holiness, we always know what His will is. 
So those are prayers that are never, ever going to fail. Let's pray. Gracious God, Romans 8 is one of the great gems of Scripture. And we've just scratched the surface this morning. I pray that we'll go home and we'll study these things through the week. And we will grow in Christ. We thank you for this glorious gift of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the glorious gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and in a sense, we've been reminded of both this morning. But also, Lord, the kind of people that you're expecting us to be. When that law makes its holy, righteous requirements, Lord, that it can be fully met in us. We live a life not in the flesh, but a life in the Spirit. I pray, Lord, that this will be the experience of everyone here this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.